The holidays are a moment of togetherness and joy and a reminder of how tradition creates happy and fulfilled communities. Make this holiday season patriotic with a visit to National Harbor and its stunning new Spirit Park. Marvel at one of the largest American flags in the region and beautiful displays of American art. Make this holiday season the most meaningful of all at National Harbor. Learn more at nationalharbor.com dash spirit park. episode of conversations with jeff i'm really excited we have a president of a seminary we've got a pastor and worldview weekend uh broadcaster andy woods and i'm really thankful that you could sit down and we can have this conversation yeah it's a joy to be here thank you of course and so you know obviously you're in ministry you're you're involved both with you know training up pastors as well as just ministry in general um but if we back up a little bit how did you get saved in the begin in the beginning and kind of how did that transpire yeah i was uh i was raised episcopalian and um i, I was raised in a very uh conservative sort of church family my, my father was in the military uh he went on to a career in the legal system was a member of the judiciary so i was always raised with a pretty patriotic god-fearing kind of family very conservative type of church but i i don't think i really was saved um i was actually an acolyte in that church an acolyte you know what an acolyte is it's like an altar boy right yeah uh, episcopalian so i was raised high church liturgical all that jazz we memorized the ten commandments and i got a big uh, cross they gave me for Sunday school attendance and all these kinds of things. So anyway, about 1983, I was born in 1966. About 1983, um, a really good friend of mine in high school invited me to a Bible study. And um, this was put on through another church. Um, basically, the, this particular study was connected semi with the Brethren churches. I don't know if you know about the Brethren churches. A little bit, a little bit, yeah. Like Grace Brethren, um, you might recognize the name David Hawking. Oh yeah, for sure. Actually, I, my my parents used to go to uh, David Hawking's church uh, before okay. I was born. So yeah, I'm definitely familiar with him. Was that the one in Santa Ana? Uh, yeah, Did Santa he... Ana. Yeah. Okay. Well, before he went to that one, he was at a church called uh, Long. I think it was Grace Brethren Long Beach. Okay. Around, around along those lines. But anyway. It was through um, a Bible study through that church that I actually heard the gospel, which okay. I'd never heard before at the Episcopalian church. And mm-hmm. so the fellow asked me, uh, you know, if you were to die tonight, you know, would you go to heaven? And I started giving my litany of reasons why I should. And it was all I, 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 you know, I've done this, I've done that, da, 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 da. And he explained to me pretty clearly that we don't get in based on what we do. It's what he did in our place. And we receive what Jesus did as a gift. And he started talking about the new birth. And I had never heard about the being born again or anything like that. So um, he kind of saw the bewilderment in my eyes and uh, led me to, to Christ. And so that was probably my spiritual, what I would call my spiritual birthday about the spring of 1983 when I was 16. Okay. 
And I, I changed from being a, a religious person to what I would call a, a New Testament Christian, the way we would understand it. For sure. And so that so then from that point, obviously, you became a Christian around, in 1983. Um, now you're a pastor and president of a seminary and that sort of thing. So what what led up to you going into ministry? Well, ministry was probably the furthest thing from my mind from about age 16 when I got saved up until around age 22. You know, if I, I went to college, a place called University of Redlands out in San Bernardino County area, mm-hmm. kind of near Riverside. Yeah. You're, you're in the L.A. area, aren't you? Yeah, down, down in Orange County. So oh, you're probably, in Orange. it's probably about 45 minutes to an hour, I'd say, drive up yeah. to Riverside area. Yeah, I was. Well, I was raised in Orange County. Oh, okay. So I was raised in a place called uh, Los Alamitos. Okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's that's not too far. We're we're down on the coast, of down in like Newport Beach area. So. Oh, Newport Beach. Yeah. Okay. And um, so basically, what happened is, you know, I went through college. Um, I was actually going to move into a career in law, and I actually did go to law school, a place called Whittier College School of Law, mm-hmm. and then I became member of the bar there in California. But along the way, um, my brother, who was a pastor of a little church in Pico Rivera, a church called Rivera First Baptist. In fact, he wasn't the pastor. He was the youth pastor. Um, He approached me about the need to start a Bible study with some young people. And I just sort of kind of laughed it off. Like, you want me to teach a Bible study? Um, you know, I, I, I'll do it until you find someone else. So I started to, you know, teach this little Bible study the best I could. And, um, I started teaching on one topic, led to another topic, led to another topic, found out that I really enjoyed doing that. And I found out that the people were being blessed, you know, through the ministry that I had. And, uh, this sort of continued to such an degree that to degree that they actually, when the other pastor retired, um, wanted me to be the pastor of this little church. You know, so I kind of stepped into that as a gift test, and um, I don't know. It's just one thing led to another. I found out I really liked doing it, really liked studying the Bible, teaching it, saw fruit in it. In other words, I was discovering my area of spiritual gifting which I don't think I really knew from age 16 to around age 22. But when I got involved with this, you know, I started to kind of sense more of a calling to do this. And so I began to kind of look around to, um, you know, I didn't want to be teaching things, not knowing what I was talking about, you know. And so I thought training was important. And so, you know, through that, I started to pursue seminary training. By then I had met my wife. And we moved from uh, California to Texas, really, to pursue uh, theological training around 1999. Okay. And so, so I left my law practice and started to do that. Got really involved with theological education, um, all the way to the PhD level. And then from there, I got a job offer. This was around 2008. 2009 down here in Houston where I live now to teach at a Bible college and uh, I taught there for seven years and I was sort of on the side working at a little church that needed a pastor 
because the former pastor, you know, had had some moral issues and he had to leave. And so what started to happen is the, the church that I was pastoring started to prosper more and more to the point where they could hire me full time. And the Bible college that I was at started to have financial problems. So a couple of years ago, they laid me off and the church that I was working at, you know, hired me full time. And so that's kind of a long story made short how I ended up from Episcopalian to evangelical Christian to from California to Texas mm-hmm. uh, to where I, what I'm doing now, which is basically full time ministry. Yeah, of course. And then throughout that time of you know training and you know leading up to going into ministry and that sort of thing, uh, who were some of your influences that helped to frame your theological positions and in your background and that sort of thing? Well, I'd have to say one of the things that really helped me was a year I t- I had in between uh, college and law school. Um, this would be about 89, 90, right in there. And I was trying to save money to go to law school. So I just took any job I could find. I took a job as a courier for a law firm. And there I was in the car all day listening to the radio. And for whatever reason, I discovered Christian radio for the first time. So I used to literally listen to Christian radio um, all day long. So I, I guess my early formative people were guys I heard on the radio. Like I mentioned, David Hawking earlier. I used to listen to him frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay Vernon McGee, you know, was another favorite of mine. Um, of course, I always had a affinity for all the Calvary Chapel pastors. You know, I would listen to Raul Reese and Chuck Smith and, you know, uh, all of these kinds of guys. Mike McIntosh, I remember listening to him. And I just remember just taking in the word, you know, over and over again for, to the course of a year. And I was teaching at that little church in Pico Rivera around that time. And so I was trying to, you know, take the things I was learning in the car and teach it to the folks at the church. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from there I started reading different books. Uh, one of the young ladies in the group asked me to teach a study in the end times, which I foolishly said yes, as if I knew, <laughs> knew, knew anything about it. So yeah. I started reading books on the end times. One of the books that really helped me was Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was very popular in the 70s, and by the time I read it, you know, its popularity had kind of come and gone, but I found that book really helpful, and that sort of led me to other books, like Grant Jeffries um, wrote a whole book, bunch of books on the end times, and then I started to see footnotes in those books to uh, J. Dwight Pentecost's book, Things to Come, so I read that book, which is more of an academic book on the end times, and that's what really gave me the interest to go to bio, uh, Dallas Seminary to study under him, which I did. And was fortunate to have him for multiple classes at Dallas Seminary. Mm-hmm. And he died, uh, I think he was, what, 99, 98 uh, recently. Mm-hmm. But uh, before he died, you know, I had him for a bunch of classes. So I'd have to credit him, I suppose, as my primary theological um, uh, influencer. Okay, for sure. There were, there were others, but, I mean, I've just kind of given you the baby steps that led me up to him. Oh, he yeah. probably has done more to help me understand the whole Bible than any other 
human teacher that I can think of. Right, for sure. And so with when you're talking about like end times and, and all that kind of stuff, I know like I've had Steve Camp on my show and he, we've talked a little bit of, of amillennialism and that sort of thing. Um, I know you're not amillennialism. Uh, so where what is your perspective on end times in a nutshell? Well, my perspective is to take the whole Bible literally, mm-hmm. whenever, unless there's an obvious figure of speech. Um, and so that leads you away from amillennialism very quickly because they just take carte blanche most of the Old Testament and <laughs> to be, you know, not to be mean about it, but to me it looks like they just rewrite it to mm-hmm. make, make, the, make it look like the kingdom is happening now. You know, so the Dead Sea coming back to life in Ezekiel 47, uh, what does that mean? To me, it means the Dead Sea is going to come back to life. To them, it means that the soul is regenerated, which means you rewrite the, the passages. So I've never been all that impressed with amillennialism. The system that impressed me early on was uh, dispensational premillennialism. Mm-hmm. And the reason I liked it is because I could take the whole Bible for what it said. You know, the passages that aren't happening now, you, there's a place in history for those to happen. You know, it's called the thousand-year kingdom. So I guess dispensational, pre-tribulational, you know, rapture before the tribulation, pre-millennial, uh, meaning Jesus comes back first before the kingdom starts, and we're in the church age now. You know, that's the system that I like because I can take the whole Bible literally and don't have to tell people, well, that passage really doesn't mean that. It means something else. Mm-hmm. For sure. And then when, so I know like a lot of people will say when you're dealing with eschatology and that sort of thing, it's not really that important, you know, which you believe and what you don't believe because God's going to have it happen however it's going to happen. It, do you feel like that's that? The, having the right eschatology is vitally important, or do you feel like it's something that we can all kind of agree to disagree on? Like, what what's your take on all that? Well, as far as a person's justification is concerned, you know how they're made right with God. Um, I don't think one's eschatology makes someone right with God. They trust in Christ mm-hmm. alone for salvation. You know, I plan on sharing heaven with a lot of people that, you know, maybe I disagreed with down here uh, on the area of eschatology or any other, a lot of other subjects. However, having said that, there's a middle tense of our salvation called progressive sanctification, where we grow in Christ. And I don't really think a person can reach their full stature in terms of their maturity unless they embrace the whole Bible and try to make sense of the whole Bible. As long as they're waving a wand and making certain parts of the Bible disappear or or whatever, uh, Mm -hmm. I don't think their progressive sanctification, you know, can really be what God has for them. And they get confused on a lot of different subjects. One of the subjects they get confused on is the mission of the church. You know, if the kingdom is future, then the mission of the church is not to bring in the kingdom or establish it. It's to win souls for the coming kingdom. You know, we're the you know the sons of the kingdom. Um, and I don't know that the mindset it, it doesn't matter. It's not that important. That sort of always bothered me because of the volume of information given in the scripture uh, concerning Bible prophecy. Uh, J. Barton Payne 
who's not a dispensational premillennialist, did a whole study on that in a book called, uh, I think it's called Encyclopedia of Bible Prophecy or Biblical Encyclopedia of Prophecy or something like that. He was just trying to figure out how much of the Bible was eschatological at the time it was written. In other words, how much of it makes a prophecy about the future. And his discovery was 27% of it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, a, pr- that's a pretty good chunk. Yeah. Huge chunk. And um, so based on that, it's just hard for me to believe that the subject's not important. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get the point they're making about it's not a justification issue, but to me, it's a huge issue with God. And I think it has something, it relates somehow to our growth in Christ. Right. For sure. And so like, and I know you had kind of touched on it as well, but do you feel like there that there is a danger in the sense of it's compromising either our mission or compromising the gospel to some way to have this idea of that we're we're essentially trying to usher in the current kingdom or we're trying to establish God's kingdom on earth right now versus essentially working towards the future? Does that make sense? Like, is is yeah. that dangerous? Well, not only do I think it's dangerous, I, I wrote a whole book on it. Uh, 400 pages called The Coming Kingdom and the subtitle is uh, How Kingdom Now Theology is Changing the Focus of the Church Mm -hmm. and so I worked on that for about four years so I obviously think that Kingdom Now Theology is an ancient heresy I mean it really goes back to Roman Catholicism and Augustine in the 4th century and his book The Israel of God and, uh, you know, Augustine wrote, wrote the first formal treatment of kingdom now theology or amillennialism in the church. And that became the, um, you know, uh, the definitive work on the subject. And Augustine became the most influential theologian in church history, not necessarily for good, but for bad. Mm-hmm. And I think his work and people that have followed him have put the church into a lot of confusion uh, you know, you look at, I just got back from Rome, you mentioned my trip, we went to the Vatican, mm-hmm. uh, the Pope considers himself the vicar of Christ, God's representative of the kingdom of God on the earth. I mean, why do they have a capital, and why are they amassing all this money, um, and why are they constantly involved in political issues? Well, it's an outworking of their kingdom now belief system. Mm-hmm. I mean, church is the kingdom of God on the earth, then it, it's logical that you would try to establish it and set it up. Whereas I'm not doing that at all in my ministry because I view us as what the book of Hebrews and first Peter calls us as pilgrims passing through the devil's terrain. I mean, we're living in Satan's territory right now and we're pilgrims passing through. And so, uh, and we're headed towards the kingdom that Jesus is going to set up. I mean, the kingdom is something that God brings. Daniel 2, it's, it's not something that we set up. So if that's my focus, then I'm not going to waste my time with that kingdom now amassing and, and all of these things the church does. Um, I'm going to be trying to win souls for the coming kingdom. So I think this is one of the key areas that Satan has been confusing the church going back to the fourth century. And the reason is because if he can get the church confused on this, he can confuse us about what our central mission is. Mm-hmm. And if he confuses us on that, then he empties the church of its effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Because you 
can't be effective as a church unless you understand what right. you're doing here on the earth. And kingdom now theology obscures that whole thing. Right. And so, but and so I have a question on like on like kingdom now theology and um, is that like in all dealing with it practically what is the difference between building let's say building for now versus building for the future like practically how does that play out that it, that would be a concern well why would i set up a vatican headquarters um why would i want to looking at the catholic church why would i want a seat in the united nations like the catholic church has uh, why would I want to influence uh, all of these political leaders all the time? Um, w- you know, why would I see myself as the vicar of Christ on the earth? I mean, I see why they think that, because they believe that they're the manifestation of the kingdom. But I'm not going to waste my time with those things, mm-hmm. uh, because it's pointless. Uh, because... The kingdom is not something that we're in now. It's something that Jesus is going to set up. So rather than rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm going to reach and teach and win what Matthew 13, 38 calls citizens of the coming kingdom. And it becomes very practical because I have a, ch- I, I live in Sugarland, Texas. You know, Tom DeLay, former Speaker of the House, came from our area. And so I have a lot of sort of politically minded, politically savvy people uh, that go to our church. Mm-hmm. One of the guys that comes to our church is a member of the, you know, Texas uh, House. And, you know, I always like to remind them that, look, all this political activity has its place. I'm not, you know, of course, I vote and all those things. But don't confuse that with setting up God's kingdom. I mean, the best you're doing is you're restraining evil. And really, our primary task is the Great Commission, you know, which becomes the Great Omission if we get involved in setting, you know, where we view our job is to set to change the structures of society. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you, you know, you look at all this whole social justice movement going on today. Yeah. And what what is that at the end of the day? Why are they so interested in social justice? The gospel coalition and all of these different groups well it really if you really think about it, it relates to kingdom now theology okay they set up what they think is a form of the kingdom and on the left they define it as big government socialism slash communism on the right they view it as you know uh you know maybe a theocracy or, or something like that mm-hmm. i mean i'm not trying to do either mm-hmm. so i think it's very practical the subject of the kingdom yeah, for sure. Trying to figure out what God says about the kingdom has a direct impact on what you think the church ought to be doing. Mm-hmm. So, so like dealing with organizations like the Gospel Coalition and dealing with that whole crowd is is they're trying to basically get Christians to support big government ideas and that sort of thing. Is that, is that specifically correlated with kingdom now theology? Is that what is prevalent in that organization? Yes. And you know, they have, they, they spend all this time on subjects like, uh, structural racism, structural bias. They, they spend all this time, uh, talking about white privilege and all of these things. And I'm thinking, why even waste my time with all those things? Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, Jesus said, the poor you'll have with you always. In other words, you're not going to get a solution to racism until Jesus comes back and rules this world 
with a rod of iron in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you know, why would I go down the road and, and waste a bunch of time trying to bring social justice to the United States as if the United States, by the way, has never done anything about racism. There probably isn't a, just off the record here or coincidentally, there is no country in the face of the earth that's done more to, to try to remedy that. Right. Uh, but the fact of the matter is racism is a condition of the heart. And as long as you have people on this world, there's always going to be racism. And the only one that's going to fix it is Jesus ruling with a rod of iron from Jerusalem. You know, I'm, I'm much more interested in preaching the gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to fix racism, preach the gospel to as many people as you can. Because right. once people understand that black and white and brown and whatever are all one in the body of Christ, um, that deals with feelings of racism towards any racial group. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the look at the hatred that existed between the Hebrews and the Samaritans going back 700 years. Yeah. And look at how that was resolved in Acts 8 when Philip, the deacon, took the gospel to the Samaritans. And the Samaritans understood that they belonged to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem understood they belonged to the Samaritans in the church age. And you now have Galatians 3.28, where there's neither Jew nor slave nor free, but we're all one in Christ. Look at how those groups got along, because they got touched by the gospel. So I don't know, do you go out and try to bring in the kingdom by influencing all of these political things and spending all your teaching time talking about social justice? Uh, or should you spend your time trying to reach and teach and fulfill the Great Commission and let God change human hearts, also understanding that the race issue, the poverty issue, the health care issue, those things won't get fixed till Jesus returns to this earth and rules the world with a rod of iron. So I don't know. I, I think the kingdom uh, topic has a huge effect on what you think Christians and the church ought to do in the present. Yeah. Now, do you th- do you think part do you think part of it is they're not they're not trusting the Holy Spirit enough for sanctification? It's almost like, well, he's not doing enough, so we might as well try to do things ourselves. Like, it, to me, that's the only logical conclusion mm. to a certain degree. You know, because it's like to me the Holy Spirit is in your life, you're progressively going to become more Christ-like throughout the entirety of your life. And part of that is going to be understanding that we're all one in Christ, I would assume, right? Yeah. So, yes. Go ahead. Well, I, I think that could be. Maybe they're getting impatient. Um, you know, but the, the reality of the situation is, God, you know, we need to stay in our lane. I mean, there's things we can do under God's power, but he doesn't authorize us to do everything. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he never authorized us to do was establish the kingdom. I mean, you go through the epistles, there's no instructions about how to administer this kingdom, uh, how to assign people roles of authority on thrones in this kingdom. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, when the kingdom comes, the saints will be reigning alongside Christ. The saints aren't reigning today. We can't even get the Bible in our public schools anymore. We can't have the Bible in a lot of our churches, you know, God help us. Uh, There's, it's obviously Christ is not reigning in kingdom fashion. So if we're setting up the kingdom, we're doing a pretty lousy job, you know, first of all, and we're, we're investing our, what little time we have left on this earth 
we're investing our time and energy into something that only Jesus could do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why Satan is working so hard to convince us of the Augustinian, either through amillennialism or postmillennialism, that somehow we're in the kingdom and bringing in the kingdom. Yeah. Now, now talking about social justice and, and that whole crowd and the gospel coalition, I feel like over the last 18 months to the last couple of years in all reality, I feel like there's been a really big compromise with a lot of the guys that everybody's kind of looked up to historically. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, Al Mohler repenting of believing that homosexuality is a choice or it's, you know, I mean, even going so far as like John Piper saying that the Second Amendment should not, shouldn't be in place or, you know, I even have serious issues with his view on final salvation and that sort of thing. What do you think is leading to this? Because, again, I feel like there's this mass compromise happening across the board from all these different guys that everybody used to look up, look up to as solid Bible teachers. Why do you think that's happening now? Well, I don't think there's enough authentic born-again Christians to bring in the kingdom. I mean, you know, we don't have the numbers to sway elections and put our guys in charge. Maybe we did at one time, but numerically, I don't think we do. So if your goal is to bring in the kingdom, then what you have to do is you start to start merging with groups that you don't necessarily agree with. So you get together with the Mormons and you say, well, you know, therefore tax cuts and uh, school choice. And so let's kind of get together with them and uh, any potential theological differences you have with them you just sort of water it down i think that's was the largely the push behind ect evangelicals and catholics together mm-hmm. of course now we're seeing uh, uh something i never thought i would see in my lifetime the big push into chrislam yep where people are trying to find act like islam and christianity or some kind of common faiths You've probably seen those signs all over uh, America. We had one here in Sugarland uh, from ICNA, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, you know, communicating that Abraham and Muhammad are basically common faiths. And you see evangelicals getting into that. You see, you know, what James White, you know, did, which we don't have to rehash all that. But, right. you know, you clearly remember all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, and even some of that stuff is still going on and will continue to go on. And so why would a, a conservative like that move in that direction? I mean, James White was pretty, and probably still is to a large extent, pretty conservative guy. I mean, I'd agree with him on every little thing, but I remember reading some books he wrote on the same sex issue and, you know, a number of other things. I thought he was fairly solid. So why would he all of a sudden open his doors, you know, to uh, Islamic jihadi to proselytize in a church? Well, I mean, I can't see his heart, but I think it has something to do with this kingdom now mindset. Because he makes a lot of statements throughout that presentation that, you know, one of these days we're going to have to fight the secularists. I don't know if you recall some of those statements made. And uh us Muslims and us Christians, we got a lot in common and we can stand together against the secularists. Um, so that's sort of an outworking of we're going to be here for a while. We're going to bring in the kingdom in some sense. And so numerically, us born again evangelical Christians don't have enough numbers to pull that off. So we've got to merge with groups that think differently than us theologically. 
that's why so many uh, evangelicals get behind a guy like Glenn Beck. Yeah, I was I was I was just thinking that because it, you know it, for the, for the longest time, especially when you had Glenn Beck was really popular, you had Mitt Romney that was running for president, and then you have guys like Franklin Graham saying that they're saved because they say they believe in Jesus. Like yeah. that that's confusion. Yeah, you know Glenn Beck. I used to listen to him pretty regularly because I found so much I agreed with politically. You know, mm-hmm. he's a limited government guy and all of these kinds of things. And David Barton. Uh, a lot of people don't like David Barton, but you know I happen to have a pretty high opinion of David Barton. Not in his theology uh, and some of his compromises theologically, but I thought he did a pretty good job retrieving American history the Christian influence on America. And so, you know, I would see him kind of show up on Glenn Beck. And then one day Glenn Beck on his show starts pushing uh, Mormon uh, archaeology, you know, that was supposedly discovered, you know, uh, the 1800s. And I said, wow, this is pushing things to a different level. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just politics anymore. He's bringing in his Mormonism. And then I would watch David Barton appear on shows like Kenneth Copeland. I mean, Kenneth Copeland, talk about a a confused theological mess. First of all, he's prosperity gospel. Right. And he believes all the health wealth stuff. And secondly, most recently, he's the one that's acting like the Protestant Reformation was was a mistake. Yeah. You know, and so you start to see this. I mean, at one level, you agree with with uh some of the political perspectives, but when you d- dig down into the theological realm, you start to see, wow, we shouldn't be involved with Glenn Beck at all. Mm-hmm. If he pushes theology, I don't think we should be involved with uh, Kenneth Copeland at all, at all, if he's going to use that as a platform that pushes theology. Right. So why would David Barton and Glenn Beck and James White and all these people move in this direction? Well, I think a lot of it is they, um, really want to bring a, a Christian uh, kingdom to the United States. They all define it maybe a little differently, but that's really what David Barton is trying to do. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't really have enough uh, Christians to pull that off. So you got to merge with people that you agree with on a political level, but disagree with on a theological level. And I think that's really the cause of a lot of the theological, um, confusion and compromise that you're you're concerned about i'm concerned about etc now with that's just my own take on it you know of course and i think that that i think that that kind of leads to the question again more for clarification purposes but at what point can christians partner with non-christians when it comes to let's say politics and that sort of thing versus when they can't um you know for example like donald trump comes to mind it's like should we be able to support him? Should we not? Because clearly he's not saved. Hey, um, you know, back to the whole Glenn Beck thing really quick. You know, I was at an event in, up in Pasadena. It's called Politicon, big political event. I was I was there uh, one year. Glenn Beck was there speaking. I was sitting in the audience. And again, like you were saying, I agree with him on most everything when it comes to politics. But then he starts talking about us Christians. And it's like, but you're not. And that's where somebody like him would be dangerous, whereas I feel like somebody like a Ben Shapiro or somebody like that who makes clear definition and clear separation between Christianity and the Jewish faith, I feel like isn't as dangerous. And that's just my two cents. But what, what's your take on when Christians should be working and not working with non-Christians? 
Well, I think uh, as long as I have the freedom to vote and you have the freedom to vote, we should show up and vote in every election and the best we can vote biblical values. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a given. Um, I think when it comes to cooperating with people to such a degree that it represents to the public that you're endorsing their theology. You know, Glenn Beck on his show wasn't just content to talk about politics. I mean, the, the show that changed me on him, my attitude towards him was when he started working in his uh, Mormon theology and the things. I think at that point, for me personally, we should be pulling out of the, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I don't think we should be co-laboring, co-belligerents with people to such an extent that we give the unsaved public the idea that their theology is okay. And where the dividing line is for each of us may be different. For me, it's when they start working their own theology into all kinds of programs and shows that Mm -hmm. I, for example, uh, David Barton was on there. And, um, you know, then Glenn Beck in the same show would turn around and work in his Mormon theology. So then you're kind of left thinking, well, is David Barton okay with Mormon theology? I mean, that's a logical Mm -hmm. question. Those kind of situations, I personally don't think I would ever want to be involved in that. But as far as just showing up and voting, Mm -hmm. biblical values or what it comes down to many times is the lesser of two evils. I mean, I really didn't vote for Trump because of Trump. (laughs) The only thing standing between me and Hillary, uh, Saul Alinsky's spiritual daughter. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the way, Saul Alinsky, as you know, wrote a book and endorsed it over to wrote the forward to uh, endorsed it to lucifer i mean talk about a satanic nightmare. Se- se- seems like a pleasant guy <laughs> <laughs> i mean saul alinsky who wrote a book to lucifer disciples hillary clinton now donald trump you know has his fallibilities but he certainly wasn't that yeah and, and the only thing really standing between me and her was him I could have voted for some third party guy that w- couldn't win dog catcher. Mm-hmm. But I, I was trying to prevent my, my mindset anyway is my vote. I was trying to prevent her from taking over this country. So, I mean, am I building an alliance with unsaved people in doing that? I don't think so. I'm just exercising my rights as an American. Mm-hmm. But if I'm together with Trump and I'm all of a sudden endorsing his uh, spiritual mentors like Paula White. Yeah. Norman Vincent Peale, because when you listen to Trump, you know, the two people that he cites as his spiritual mentors are Paula White and Norman Vincent Peale. Well, Paula White, I, I don't even think she's saved, to be completely honest with you. Yeah. Maybe, maybe she is. I mean, she's wrapped up in that whole um, word of faith mindset. And Norman Vincent Peale, you know, when you read some books by Warren Smith, he got his ideas from a from an occultic source. And it went from this occultic source to Norman Vincent Peale, to Robert Schuller, to Rick Warren. So would I be in an environment with Donald Trump where I'm so heavily endorsing him that I'm giving people uh, the impression that all his spiritual influences are okay? I don't want to be in that position. So anyway, I just tried to, what you gave me was a pretty 
complicated question, but I'm just trying to yeah. get my, my personal parameters on it. Of course, of course. And so I think that some of this kind of then leads into, I know that you were involved with uh, Brandon House's like movie Sabotage. And that, you know, you, you spoke at the conference that was, that was included in the movie and that sort of thing. Um, I know that from his perspective, the movie itself wasn't necessarily like a Christian movie, but it does deal with a lot of Christian themes and Christian issues and that sort of thing. What What's your take in the sense of dealing with how Marxianity and socialism is infiltrating the church and ultimately, like, what's... You know, is is that back to the kingdom now theology blatantly, or is it something more? You know, what what what's the main reason why these guys are allowing this Marxism to come into the church? Well, I, I believe it is kingdom now theology. I think their view of the kingdom is what they call utopia, mm-hmm. which is a classless society. So, you know, they're they're the mindset of Karl Marx is basically you view class distinctions as the source of all evil. It's not so much you're getting it from the Bible where the source of all evil is our sin nature that we inherited from Adam that needs to be redeemed in Christ. It comes from some other, you know, if you're going to reject that as a, as a, as a the source of evil, you got to come up with some solution as to why there's evil in the world. And they honestly believe if they eradicate classes and eliminate capitalism, they, they can bring in the kingdom of God. So uh, what they want to do is they want to create a Bible understanding. Sometimes it goes under the version liberation theology. They want to create a biblical understanding that accommodates what they're ultimately trying to do. So they come up with sort of a, a Jesus that's a social reformer. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they're really trying to convert us wholesale to Marxism, but it clearly is one of their strategies to take the church and create a version of Christianity, which is more sympathetic to Marxism than the biblical Christianity that you and I embrace. And so I believe one of their strategies is to pick off conservative people to help in this cause. The liberals, they already have. What the, the only real point of resistance left in America against communism is basically people like us, you know, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. So if you get some of our guys, whether it be an Alistair Begg, uh, I, I'm saying our guys generically because i got a lot of theological differences with Alistair Begg, mm-hmm. but he's sort of looked at as a conservative expositor, and, you know, to certain, certain areas he is. Uh, the John MacArthur group, um, James White, all people I disagree with theologically, but all viewed as conservatives. I think the Marxists understand that those those folks have followings. And all they've got to do is present a narrative of Christianity that's slightly more sympathetic to their goal of Marxist conquest, which they think will bring in the kingdom. And they'll have broken down the last point of resistance in the United States. And really the last force, economic force in the world, you know, stopping communism could be could be toppled through that. So I think there is a strategy to change the thinking and the direction of the church. Are they going to 
convert us to full-blown communists now. All they do is just alter the narrative of Christianity a little bit so it's a little bit more sympathetic to what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Liberation theology, and I think that's why they're targeting people like Alistair Begg, John MacArthur, James White, uh, all of these kinds of, of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a prominent conservative is a pretty big prize for them. Oh, yeah, for sure. And one of the ways they're doing it is they're convincing these guys that they're bringing in the kingdom too. Yeah, but what's it, well, what's interesting to me is that it's like I get it with the guys that are the amillennial or the kingdom now theology um, and that sort of thing. But then you've got guys like MacArthur who is like a, a you know lines aligns up pretty pretty solidly eschato- eschatologically uh, mm-hmm. with us. Um, and so how, how do you get some of these guys who aren't necessarily a millennial to then essentially be embracing all this stuff? Well, I think with a guy like John MacArthur, it's not so much his theology, uh, although there are some real deficiencies in his theology. Uh, but I think the issue with him is, is his associations is a problem. Mm-hmm. I think what's sort of shifting his ministry is not so much him and what he says and what he writes, but it's the people that he associates with. And that's, you know, he's a pretty prominent guy, uh, still is, talented guy, influential guy. And you get someone like that on the same stage with, um, you know, someone that's a little bit more open to liberation theology, and the next generation says, I guess liberation theology isn't that bad. Mm Mm-hmm. So with MacArthur, I don't know if they're really so much trying to change his theology. What is he, 70? Probably his late 70s by now. Yeah. I don't think he's going to change. But if you can use his influence to give cover to someone else, um, I think that's one of their goals. Yeah. So so from, from your perspective, as a pastor, what is the biblical precedent on like sharing the stage and associations and that sort of thing? Because one of the defenses of John MacArthur from – guys like Phil Johnson and Todd Friel and J.D. Hall is, well, you're just dealing with six degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? You could, you could link anybody together and everybody's associated to everybody. So, so what is the biblical principle that pastors and Christians in general should be looking at in the sense of dealing with associations and that sort of thing? Well, I think anytime you're giving someone of an aberrant view cover, and you're giving the public the impression that what they're saying is okay. Uh, I think that's problematic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. And it's 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 sort of a, a tough uh, thing. I, you know, I've been invited to some conferences. People have criticized me for one conference I've been to twice. And there's there were some people there, you know, into you know, some things that I really wouldn't consider radical heresy or anything, but it was like Nephilim kind of issues. And, and uh, so it's always sort of a tough balancing act um, because you want to, you appreciate the, as long as they don't uh, censor what you say um, and you have an opportunity to reach people, you have to balance that with, am I giving so-and-so cover? So for me, it has to relate to something really radical and unbiblical that they're promoting, not just an eccentrism. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of eccentrism out there. And so I've appeared at a conference or two with some eccentric views, you know, that I didn't really think were 
radical unbiblical views. But if someone is up there, you know, um, denying the Trinity or any promoting liberation theology, health and wealth gospel, uh, I really don't know if I want my name or likeness attached to that conference because it gives the unsaved public the impression that those views are okay. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to balance, you know, the opportunity to share uncensored and potentially reaching people that you may not normally be able to reach versus running cover for somebody, providing cover for somebody. Right, for sure. And do you, do you feel do you feel like do you feel like the guys, you know, and I don't want to get too specific, but essentially there's the the MacArthur crowd and there's there's kind of an extended crowd w- with within them. Um I feel like a lot of times instead of sticking with the guys that they feel are theologically sound, they're they're going out and they're speaking with the Gospel Coalition crowd. They're speaking with Rick Warren at the NRB convention. They're speaking with all these guys and it's like now it'd be one thing if you guys are going to say, "Okay, look, Rick Warren is completely false. He's promoting ecumenism. He's promoting X, Y, and Z and whatever it is." But I feel like they're never really doing that, you know? And then there was like, you know, spe- people speaking with Tim Keller. There's people speaking with all these guys that it's like, "Well, where's the condemnation? Where's the where's the confronting the error in while you're sharing the stage with, with these guys that you continually say are dangerous, you know? Well, with those guys, some of the guys you mentioned there, they're very Calvinistic, all of them. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like when you get into these Calvinistic circles, they sort of look at Calvinism, Tulip, one's views on Tulip as the test of orthodoxy. So their perspective, and I think this is a blind spot on their part, they think if you're okay with Tulip, then everything else you say is okay too. Mm -hmm. So should I be on the stage with a mystic? Yeah, I guess that's okay as long as I hold the Tulip. Should I be on stage with uh, a liberation theologian? I guess that's okay as long as I hold the Tulip. Whereas myself, I don't really think Tulip is correct biblically anyway. And so I don't really use TULIP as some kind of barometer to ascertain someone else's orthodoxy or theological accuracy in other areas. And I think because they're so into this TULIP and this Calvinistic model, it almost acts like as a blind spot, preventing them from seeing what other people in their camp really believe in all kinds of other areas that also might hold the TULIP. Mm-hmm. What, what, what's your concern with TULIP and Calvinism and that sort of thing? Oh, wow, you got a good six hours to go through. <laughs> hey, there's no time limit here. So, <laughs> Well, uh, you know, to me, TULIP is a philosophy imposed on the Bible. That's really what it comes down to. And they're not really getting their ideas so much from the Bible. They're bringing their ideas to the Bible. Mm-hmm. So you go right on down the list. T stands for total depravity. Um, of course, I believe in total depravity, if they'll let me define it the way I want to define it. I, I believe every area of our being has been corrupted by sin. But I don't believe that means we're as wicked as we can possibly be. Right. When I was an unsaved person, I still applied the brakes and the crosswalk. You know, when people, I didn't try to mow people down as an unsaved person. Uh, and they're, they're so... They emphasize to the T in tulip so so severely that they don't even think an unsaved person 
has the capacity to trust in Christ, even when they come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. My understanding of the Bible, John 16, 7 through 11, is Jesus has sent the Spirit into the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin because they don't believe. So the Spirit is there in the world convicting people of the need to trust Christ. So I believe an unsaved person could respond to that conviction and trust Christ. A lot of the Calvinists don't even believe that. They think you have to be born again first so you can believe second. In other words, the regeneration is the cause of faith. And it's not the product of faith. See, the way I look at it is regeneration is the product of faith. Mm-hmm. So that would be an example where I don't really think they're following the scripture. They're following a human philosophy, you know, by a guy who was, what, 26 or 27 years old when he wrote a lot of these things down and admitted his dependency on Augustine. Who, a lot of whose theology I condemn, and we spoke about that earlier, mm-hmm. and really was not was a guy you know that actually put people to death. Uh, Calvin did in, in Geneva. So, so why am I taking this human philosophy from this guy and ramming it on the Bible like that when the Bible really doesn't support what he is saying? So they've got the the T wrong, and if you got the T wrong, then you got uh, regeneration preceding faith. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. There's not a shred of scriptural evidence that indicates that regeneration precedes faith. Mm-hmm. It's always, you know, look at John 3.16. You know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have life everlasting. The life everlasting, your regeneration or new birth, comes subsequent to faith. It's a, it's a result of faith, not the cause of faith. See the difference there? Mm-hmm. For sure. And, well, then, then you ask, well, who gets regenerated? So you can believe. Well, only the elect do. And then you say, well, didn't Jesus die for the whole world? And they say, no, he didn't die for the whole world. And that's the L. Uh, they believe in what's called limited atonement. Well, the Bible doesn't teach limited atonement, um, that Christ only died for the elect. What the Bible says is he died for the whole world, First John 2, verse 2. And, you know, then uh, they basically say, well, if you're one of the elect and if your regeneration, you know, precedes faith and you're irresistibly drawn to Christ, that's the I. You can't resist the Holy Spirit, in other words. Well, that again flies in the face of the Bible because Stephen in Acts 7 condemned the Jews at the end of the chapter. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And then the P stands for, well, if you're one of the elect and regeneration precedes faith, and if faith is a gift, then you'll always are going to persevere in the Christian life. There should be an upward trajectory of fruit bearing. Well, uh, again, that flies in the face of the Bible because Paul talks about a fellow in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15, uh, whose works are, des- uh, you know, they're put through a fire, gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and stubble. And it says his works will be burned up. In other words, he spent the majority of his Christian life in the flesh, but he himself will be uh, saved as though escaping through the flames. So there's an example of a believer 
that really didn't persevere in fruitfulness. Mm-hmm. So I guess my point is, this is what bothers me about Tulip. It's a philosophy imposed on the Bible. And if you just go point by point, you can see where it deviates from the scripture. And so I guess in a nutshell, that would be sort of my problem with this very aggressive Calvinistic model that we're getting today from folks. Right. Which which I think also kind of leads into the whole Lordship Salvation side of things as well. And and again, this this is coming from me, who is more Calvinistic, who grew up in the MacArthur crowd and in that sort of thing. And the more I'm involved with a lot of these kinds of conversations and dealing with lordship salvation, I'm seeing a lot of these guys kind of taking it to an extreme of of your of it's almost to the point to where you're earning your own salvation. You know, for example, you've got somebody like John Piper who, who completely ignoring Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, will say that you're only justified by faith, you're not saved by faith. So what, what, what's your take on what the biblical perspective is on that? Where, where do works play into salvation, if at all? Or is that only sanctification? Kind of what's, what's that perspective? Well, I, I believe in three tenses of salvation, justification, sanctification which is your growth and then glorification you know when you're in out of this body at the rapture or death whichever comes first and you don't have a sin nature anymore because you're in glory so i have been saved i am being saved i will be saved is the three tenses of salvation and there is not a single work involved in your justification uh Paul is very clear in Romans 4, verse 5. He says, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. So in God's mind, faith, which means reliance or dependence or confidence in what Jesus has done, is the one thing we can do before a holy God, which is not meritorious. So if anybody changes that and says, well, you know, you really have to exhibit sorrow. Uh, Not that I'm against people exhibiting sorrow when they're saved. I just don't think that's, uh, you know, something they have to have. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to renounce your sins. Um, You have to be willing to die to yourself and follow Christ. Uh, what they're doing is they're changing the grace message. They're, they're subtly, whether they understand it or not, adding more and more conditions. And the Bible is very clear. It says it in John three sixteen. It probably says it around 160 times that mm-hmm. God will not accept a single work we do. The only work he will accept is what Jesus has done. And we can't even receive that as a work. We have to receive it by faith alone or we're not coming. And so that, to me, is one of the biggest problems with Lordship Salvation, is it tampers with that, and it puts their doctrine under the the curse of Galatians 1, uh, where Paul utters an anathema against a works-oriented gospel. So you're not saved at all by your works. You're saved by trusting what Jesus has done. Okay, well, then you're born again. You're regenerated, which is not the cause of faith. It's the result of faith. Mm-hmm. So the Holy Spirit's inside of you, and you've just come out of a life of living the way you wanted to live under the world system, and you drag a lot of bad stuff with you into Christianity. 
And so now comes a process called growth or progressive sanctification, where you start to learn about your resources in Christ. Lewis Berry Chafer said we've got about 33 things at the point of faith that we didn't have before, like the Holy Spirit, the new nature, spiritual gifting, the capacity to understand truth, I mean, all illumination. Mm-hmm. And so you don't, in a nanosecond, uh, start to live correctly as a Christian. It's a growth stage. You know, a newborn child, they don't uh, grow up and 10 seconds later, you know, are in careers and having their own kids and asking for the keys to the car. And uh, they have to go through a process of growth. So why would we as Christians have anything different? And that's the middle tense of salvation. Mm-hmm. And some people make great strides in that middle tense in terms of their development into Christ likeness. Other people don't. That's what Corinthians is written to, to, to condemn those Christians who are not growing as they should explaining to them not that they're going to hell see the lordship people a lot of them will say well if i don't see any fruit then you're on your way to hell i would say there's a whole other possibility there could be the person is saved but is just not maturing properly and they're not on their way to hell they're on their way to uh ineffectiveness in this life and they're on their way to a loss of rewards at the bama seat judgment so all that stuff I'm talking about is middle tense stuff. And then we die or we're raptured and we're out of bodies with sin natures in them. And so now we're in God's presence where the appetite to return to sin doesn't even exist anymore. So all the, you know, you ask where do good works come in. I'm going to put all of that in the middle tense of salvation. I don't think it has anything to do with justification. I don't think it has anything to do with one's glorification but it has everything to do with our growth in Christ. And they're not even our works when you think about it. It's really tapping into the resources that you already have in Christ and allowing the Holy Spirit to express himself through you. Mm -hmm. And we have the capacity as Christians to grieve the Spirit, Ephesians 4.30, and to quench the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. I can go back to my sin nature anytime I want to as a Christian. I don't have to, but I can. And so I need to be in an environment where I'm being taught correctly, discipled correctly, where I'm receptive to the things of God. I have to be in a church that emphasizes these truths and these things. Uh, And so that's where I would put your works and your growth in the middle tense. Does that help? And I find the Lordship Salvation people don't, don't have that understanding at all. They either front load the gospel they take the middle tent stuff and put it out on the front end and say, well, unless we see all these things on the front end, then you're not saved or justified. Or they backload the gospel and they basically say, if we don't see these things happening, then maybe you're not saved. Or as my response is, maybe they are saved. They're just not growing. Mm -hmm. So my big difference with Lordship Salvation is I think it's a works oriented gospel and I think it's front-loading and back-loading the gospel. And most of them have absolutely very little, uh, if you listen to them talk, they demonstrate very little understanding of the three tenses of salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, justification, progressive sanctification, and then glorification. And until a person learns to delineate those, the Bible 
I don't think will make a lot of sense to them. And the risk is they're going to end up grabbing passages aimed at the believer's growth and hold it out as a condition for justification. And they're going to end up teaching a works-oriented gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, godly sorrow leads to repentance, they always quote. Well, look at that in, what is that, Second Corinthians 7 right in there? Who is Paul dealing with there? He's not. He's dealing with saved people. Yeah. He's not. He's not making that a condition to, to be justified the way lordship salvation does. Mm-hmm. He's making it a condition for growth. So I don't know. I hope I'm not rambling here. But... No, not at all. But but I think I think that there's kind of like two different camps within the lordship salvation. There's what, mm-hmm. and this and this is just for me. My perspective is you have one camp that's the John Piper, who says that works are how are what you're going to are, are how you're ultimately going to be saved. It's not how you're justified, but it's how you're going to be saved. So he separates justification versus salvation essentially. And then you have the crowd that I grew up in which was the MacArthur crowd that seems to say that lordship salvation is if you're if you're truly saved, then the result of that salvation will result in good works. So it's not that you're earning it, but it's that that's the result of it. So you kind of have these two different views all within the lordship salvation side of things. Um, and then one of the arguments that I've also seen is that if you're truly saved, you would never commit X or X, Y, and Z sin, right? You would never commit a particular sin. And I've seen that a lot from a lot of these guys as well. So wh- wh- is is that biblical at all in the sense of if you're saved, will will you for sure see improved life will you see a christian uh, participating in certain kinds of sins what's your take on that well first of all the first part when you describe the two camps of lordship salvation that's what i was trying to talk about earlier front loading versus back loading mm-hmm. it looked like piper was front loading the way you okay. described and macarthur and some of his followers were back loading um you know, then the question is, well, if you're if you're really saved, you know, would you ever go back to such and such a sin? Um, I would say that the holy life in Christ is desired. That's what God wants. And he even attaches rewards to it at the Bema Seat Judgment following the rapture. It's desired, but the holy life, I don't think, is automatic. They use the word automatic. You have to have these things. Mm-hmm. And I would appoint them to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15, where the text itself contradicts their philosophy that they're imposing on the Bible, where it talks about a man, you know, whose works are burned. Uh, He shall suffer loss, says, but he himself will be saved as though escaping through the fire. Uh, You look at how Paul deals with, uh, because people will say a, a born-again Christian would never commit adultery. Well, look at 1 Corinthians 6. Matter of fact, I just got back from Corinth and saw the remains, you know, of the pagan temple structure where it was common for people to have sexual relations with prostitutes in the name of religion. And Paul deals with that whole subject in 1 Corinthians 6. And watch how he deals with it because that immorality was invading the church, and some people in the church were doing that. He doesn't say, you know, if you guys were really saved, you wouldn't do something like that. 
what he says is, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So he never questions that the Holy Spirit is inside of him. He says, don't you know that when you go do that, you're involving the Holy Spirit in that sin? So that, to me, demonstrates that as, as painful as it is, it's possible for a Christian to move into sexual sin, sexual immorality, adultery. And the, the, the difficulty is when I say this, people think I'm promoting it. Like, yay, let's go. Right, yeah. <laughs> let's go do this. And I, you, you suffer greatly as a Christian if you do these things. Look at David. Yeah. Look at the whirlwind his life became because he went back into the sin nature. But the fact that David did it shows that Christians have the ability to do it. That's what's going on in Corinth. So when someone comes along and says a Christian will never do X, Y, and Z, um, and they always ask the question, you know, a guy I know said he was saved. You know, I don't see enough fruit in his life. and He's still living with his girlfriend. And I would say, first of all, maybe we should give the guy five minutes to grow. First of all, mm-hmm. you know, uh, when Paul says renew your mind, that's not an instantaneous thing that happens. I would say, secondly, maybe he's not saved. Maybe he's like a Judas, you know, who looked the part, but you know, really was never regenerated. That's possible. Mm-hmm. And that's where John MacArthur, you know, goes off on uh, gospel presentations where people are supposed to come forward and fill out a card. You know, I've never, I give the gospel every week at our church. I've never told people to come forward and fill out a card. I told them to trust Christ, which is what the New Testament says. Right. Um, so if a guy is shacking up and claiming the name of Christ, I would say, A, Maybe he's not saved. Or B, maybe he's a lot like Lot. You know, Lot in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you? I mean, you look at the Old Testament. Would you ever think Lot was saved? All the stuff he was involved in. I mean, I mean, if he I, if he was put into scenarios now, there's no way that anybody would consider yeah. him saved. Yeah. If I, if I just had the Old Testament record to go by, I would say the guy was never justified. But Second Peter two seven and eight calls him a righteous man. Not once, not twice, but three times. So in th- in just a series of three verses. So I would say that opens the possibility that maybe he is saved, which he is, but he's not growing the way he should. Mm-hmm. So the question, you know, what about the guy that claims Christ, but there's no tangible fruit yet? Um, I would say maybe he's not a Christian, but the Lordship people would say he's definitely not a Christian. Right. That's their only option. Yeah. And that's where they get into this very aggressive fruit inspection where they say this person's saved, this person's not. This person's saved, this person's not. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a it's like a pope saying this person did enough good works to prove they were saved, this person didn't. Uh, I'm saying let's hold the phone on that. First of all, we're not God. I'm not in a position to ascertain who's saved and who's not. I'm not omniscient. Maybe he's not saved, but maybe he's like Lot where his growth is inhibited because of his sinful choices. Mm -hmm. And he's suffering a lot because Lot's soul was vexed. And the wages of sin is death. He's no doubt experiencing a lot of temporal consequences for his choices, just like David did, Solomon did, etc. Saul did in the Old Testament, and maybe that's the situation he's in. And I noticed that with Lordship Salvation people, that latter option isn't even a possibility. Yeah. 
Whereas Paul in First Corinthians three, you know, Paul's a pretty sophisticated guy. He doesn't just divide the world into saved and unsaved. That's what Lordship Salvation does. He takes the ranks of the saved. He says there's the unsaved, but then he takes the ranks of the saved and he divides the saved into three categories. The spiritual man, the infant, and the carnal man. Mm -hmm. And he uses three different words uh, to describe the ranks of the saved. So as far as Paul is concerned, there are believers that are saved and growing. That's the spiritual man. First of all, there's the unsaved. That's the natural man. But within the ranks of the saved, the, there's believers that are growing. That's the spiritual man, 1 Corinthians 3. Then there's the infants, people that are doing things age-appropriate because they don't know any better. But then there's the carnal man who's living for the flesh, and that's sort of like looking at a 16-year-old that's still sucking their thumb. Mm -hmm. They should have grown out of that a long time ago. Right. And the way Paul thinks is there's a category for each one of these. And his whole exhortation to the Corinthians is not, you guys need to get saved. They're obviously saved because he tells them they have the Holy Spirit inside of them, chapter 6. And he calls them saints at the beginning of the book. What he says is you need to graduate from the infant to the spiritual man or from the carnal to the spiritual man. So anyway, that's sort of my model of, of the middle tense of salvation, progressive sanctification. And I notice that Lordship Salvation is very simplistic about it. They don't even have those categories. Mm -hmm. A lot of them get visibly angry when you even bring up these types of categories. And to them, it's saved and unsaved. Right. You're either growing or you're not growing. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, and that's where the, the judgmentalism and the fruit inspection comes in. Yeah evaluating whether folks are saved or not at all. And I'm saying the Bible is a little bit more sophisticated and nuanced than how they're portraying it. It's they're, they're, To me, Lordship Salvation is this very simplistic grid imposed upon something that's somewhat nuanced and complex in the mind of the Apostle Paul. Right, for sure. You know, and what, one, th one thing that I've noticed is that, you know, the, a lot of times they'll, they'll use you know, the, the, the strictness of the Lordship Salvation. And, and I think that what ends up happening is instead of them coming alongside somebody who is struggling or in sin or whatever it is, and just in trying to teach them and walk through life with them and help them to grow, they're just like, well, he's not saved anyway. And that, that's, that's been my impression, you, you know, because like my first guest on this podcast was my wife's uncle, Carl Crew. And that's essentially what every single person tried to do to him. That that's within this lordship salvation camp is, well, look look at him. This is what he's doing X, Y, and Z. He's clearly not saved. And those of us that are around him are sitting here saying, well, we've seen where he was. We see where he is. We do see a drastic improvement, and we do see him walking with Christ and that sort of thing. But I feel like what a lot of people miss is everybody kind of starts at a different place. Like if if somebody is an alcoholic and they become a Christian, they may be trying to stop, but that doesn't mean that they're never going to stumble again, if that makes sense. And I think that that's where a lot of these guys really miss it is that to me, if you see the improvement, that's great. But at the same time, it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. And the other thing is you can only see so much in a person, mm -hmm. you know, was it your uncle or whoever? Yeah. 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 He, he may be growing in areas that they don't even see. Right. 
And they're making an evaluation of him based on the narrow things that they can see. Mm-hmm. So when someone says, well, you're not bearing enough fruit, I usually like to say, well, you mean they're not maturing the way you think they ought to mature. Right. They very well could be maturing in other areas outside of your purview. And mm-hmm. we're not omniscient. We're creatures. So I don't have an omniscient perspective into someone's life. Um, so generally to me, if someone claims the name of Christ, I try to give them the benefit of the doubt as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am, you know, just to show you where I am on this, I still am open to the possibility that a lot of folks, particularly here in the Bible Belt, claim the name of Christ, but some, I, I believe some of them are not saved because Christianity is just sort of cultural. And I know that because I was a very moral person for the first, uh, my Episcopalian background, and I was not regenerated. So I think it's entirely possible that someone can claim the, the name of Christ and not be regenerated. But I also think it's possible that someone can be an authentic, regenerated, born-again Christian and really not demonstrate a lot of fruit out of the gate, mm-hmm. and maybe throughout their whole life. And I think that's what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15. So anyway, that's sort of the spectrum of thinking I have on that. Of course. And then just kind of as we're beginning to kind of wrap up and that sort of thing, what what do you think is the is the biggest issue that the church is facing right now? Like what what's what's the main thing that I that we should all be concerned about or studying about or you know whatever that is? Well, I, I believe this. I've felt this for a long time, and it may relate to the spiritual gifting that I have. You know, you see things through the lens of your own gifting a lot of times, but. I, I have felt for a long time that your average church has gotten away from the full counsel of God's Word. Um, we're, we're actually moving systematically through uh, biblical books and dealing with every topic, no matter how long it takes. Um, and I would call that the full counsel of God's Word, verse-by-verse study. I don't pick my sermon topics. The Lord picks them for me because that happens to be the next chapter that we're systematically working through in any given book. And I find myself talking about things I would never talk about from the pulpit if I was in charge of the process and selecting things. Mm -hmm. So I think we've gotten into this sort of topical diet where pastors are just randomly picking verses that fit their preconceived ideas rather than teaching the whole counsel of God's Word, and and not just teaching the Bible, but teaching it through its literal, grammatical, historical sense. Because a lot of people are giving folks the Bible today, but they're giving it it to them through a lens. You know, if you sit under an amillennialist, you're getting the Bible, but you're getting it through his particular lens. If you're sitting under a Calvinist, uh, you're getting the Bible, but you're getting it through his particular lens. Same with an Arminian. Um, same with uh, a Lordship Salvation person. And I think we need to get we need to chuck the lens and let the Bible be the lens. Mm-hmm. And just to talk, and that's why I'm a big advocate of not just a literal approach to the Bible, but a literal approach to the whole Bible. You know, I became a pre-tribulational premillennial dispensationalists, not because I fell in love with those theological systems, 
and started to read biblical texts through the lens of those systems. I became uh, interested in those systems because I felt that they had the best shot at explaining the whole Bible. So I think we need to start with the Bible, the whole Bible, nothing but the Bible, and then let our theology fall into place after that. And we need to quit uh, marginalizing texts in the scripture that go against our theology or our model of church growth. We need to just let the Bible speak. You know, was it Spurgeon that, what did he make the comment about the lion? The Bible's like a lion, you know, all you got to do is let it out of the cage. Mm -hmm. I mean, God's word will do the work if we let it in our teaching and in our openness in our personal lives. And I think that's what's missing in a lot of places. The emphasis is on either promoting a theology or promoting a denominational tradition or, you know, everybody's so obsessed with church growth today. You know, the ABCs of ministry, attendance, buildings, and cash. Mm-hmm you know, that they're moving into sort of the seeker-friendly approach or then the emergent church folks come along, we get into the mystical approach. I just think it's time to dump all that stuff and just get back to the Bible, the whole Bible, nothing but the Bible. I felt that for a long time. And mm-hmm. I still have that conviction. Right. And I, and I feel like, kind of going along with that too, I feel like a, a, what's holding back a lot of churches, I think to a certain degree, is this celebrity worship and that you just you believe what your celebrity pastor says as opposed to let's say use what he teaches as a springboard for your own study and getting into God's word and i think that that's where a lot of this error i think is able to come in is that everybody's so obsessed with their favorite pastor i think and i think it's really stunting people because they're not getting in God's word yeah it's what paul said in 1 corinthians some follow apollos some follow Cephas, some follow Paul, some claim they're following Christ, and, and Paul says, is Christ divided? You know, if if Martin Luther was worried about celebrity worship, we would have, <laughs> we have never had the Protestant Reformation. True. Because his whole, you know, when he was questioned in his debate, I think it was with Eck, Dr. Eck, I think it was at the Diet of Worms, he was challenged, well, where's your authority for all these things you believe? look at this monk, look at this priest, look at this pope, look at this council. And Luther said, you know, he called the book of Galatians in German, my, my frat, my wife. He says, unless I can convince by scripture alone and sound reason, I'm not going to change my beliefs. And so Luther, I think, gave us the formula for how to handle these things. It's you stand on scripture alone and let the chips fall where they may regardless of what your favorite celebrity pastor, you know, uh, teaches or doesn't teach. I mean, that's never been the issue. The issue is, can you find it in the word of God? Mm-hmm. For sure. And so I, you know, I really want to thank you for taking the time to, you know, sit down and have, and have this conversation. Uh, if people want to, you know, follow you, whether it's on social media or your website or, you know, get, learn more about you and your ministry and that sort of thing, how can they get that information? Yeah, um, there's a lot. Of, there's a few different ways. Uh, one is my church, Sugarland Bible Church, www.slbc.org, and we have uh, audio files and video files of sermons that I teach there, and they're basically expositional, verse by verse messages. You know, we've done Ephesians and Romans and John. It takes us a while. It took us three years to go through. John, and we've done Daniel, and I'm currently teaching the book of Revelation 
we just finished uh, lesson 20 and we're already in chapter four, <laughs> chapter five. So yeah. kind of gives people a sense. Um, so that's one way. Another way is to go to my YouTube channel. Just type in Andy Woods and pastor's uh, point of view. Mm-hmm. And I'll and I'll link that in the in the description down below too. Yeah, and they'll find a ton of teaching stuff on there, conferences, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. And then I do have a little web uh, page that I used, uh, also called Andy Woods www.andywoodsministries.org. So that's another way. Um, a guy that's really helped me uh, kind of uh, archive my stuff over the years is a guy named Tony Garland who runs Spirit and Truth, and I'm one of several contributors to that. But if you go to my column, you'll see a ton of stuff I've done over the last decade, www.spiritandtruth.org. So those four sources will give anybody that's interested a way to locate me. I'm, I'm not hard to find. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of stuff out there. So Yeah, for sure. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time to, you know, join me on the podcast and really enjoyed this conversation and hope we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. We'll definitely have to do it again. Definitely. Sounds good. Thanks so much. The holidays are a moment of togetherness and joy and a reminder of how tradition creates happy and fulfilled communities. Make this holiday season patriotic with a visit to National Harbor and its stunning new Spirit Park. Marvel at one of the largest American flags in the region and beautiful displays of American art. Make this holiday season the most meaningful of all at National Harbor. Learn more at nationalharbor.com spiritpark. HIV is still an issue in Montgomery County. The more open we're able to talk about HIV, we treat it like any other health prevention. PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. People who are not HIV positive who may be at high risk for contracting the disease. This is a good choice for you. It's just a way for you to sort of take control and say, I'm going to do this to protect myself. Do it for them. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Learn more about PrEP, the HIV prevention medication. Visit doitforyoumc.org.